What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are back as the rock doctors. And we're going to help a listener struggling with a musical midlife crisis. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Japan Droids and Regina Spector. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing, creating speaker systems for the iPod and the computer, allowing music fans to listen critically. Online at alltechlansing.com. Hear what's next. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. My generation is That is a California pop-punk band, Green Day. One of their songs was among 30 shared by a Boston Ph.D. student named Joel Tenenbaum. He ended up going to trial in Boston for sharing those 30 songs on his hard drive, and uh, the RIAA ended up a big winner. The Recording Industry Association of America won $675,000 in damages from a Boston jury in the Tenenbaum case, or $22,500 per song. This is the second major trial, Jim, that the record industry has won against a file sharer. In Minnesota earlier this year, Jamie Thomas Rassett was fined $1.9 million for sharing music from her computer hard drive. And now Tenenbaum is the second. This is a very high-profile case because he was represented by Harvard Law Professor Charles Nesson. Who sounds like a real character, Greg. He was appointed (laughs) by the court to represent Tenenbaum and uh, kept filing these motions and and kind of getting on the bad side of the judge. He decided to record the proceedings and post them on his blog, which made the judge even angrier. Well, it's interesting, whereas Thomas Rassett denied ever sharing songs with anybody, Tenenbaum right up front said, you know, yes, I did do this. I did uh, download these songs, put them on my hard drive, and make them available to my friends on the Internet. Nesson sought to make this a cause celeb. He wanted to broaden out this case and turn it into a referendum on file sharing, basically arguing that, hey, half of America is doing this. It is fair use. It should be allowed and was shot down on every count. And the jury turned around and awarded the record industry a a massive victory. To get some perspective on all this, Greg, we wanted to talk to Nate Anderson, a senior editor at Ars Technica, one of the leading websites uh, that have been covering the fight against illegal downloading as it winds its way through the courts. Nate, welcome to Sound Opinions. Great. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you very much. So, Nate, how long have you been covering these copyright trials for Ars Technica? I've been following the case for over a year now, I think, and I've, I've talked to all the major players involved. It sounds like this trial was uh, kind of a circus. <laughs> it's been a circus, 
really since it got started. Uh, this guy, Joel Tenenbaum, is being defended by a Harvard Law professor, Charles Nesson, um, who has excelled at using unorthodox tactics that have uh, several times irritated the judge. So it's been fascinating to follow. Well, in a lot of ways, the trial seemed to be over before it even began when the judge struck down, uh, in essence, a central defense, which was uh, the fair use, and in invoking the fair use doctrine. Right. I mean, the whole play here was not so much a, I didn't do it defense, but I did it, everyone's doing it, and, you know, it's not wrong. Now, it seems to me, in both in Tenenbaum's trial and in the Jamie Thomas Rassett trial, there was almost a punitive aspect to the uh, damages that were awarded. What, what I think is really interesting here is what has happened to the amount. According to the statute, they could have been as low as $750 per song. But juries have decided that uh, these sorts of violations are worth $10,000 a song in the first case. When that case was retried, the jury decided, no, $80,000 a song. Yeah. And in this case, last week, it was $22,500 per song. So these numbers really appear to be just kind of pulled out of a hat. Nate, do you get any sense... Do these juries in America really realize that hundreds of thousands of kids are downloading these songs, and do they really think each of those kids ought to be liable for, for between 20000 and $80,000 per every stolen Green Day song? Well, it's hard to say. Most jurors that we've tried to contact are not willing to talk about it, but I think the juries do look at these things. Uh, they say, this does appear to be hurting the industry in some way, and there is, I think, a sort of we-want-to-send-a-message approach. Nesson, in the Tenenbaum case, and uh, in, as well as in the Jamie Thomas Resit case, there was an attempt to sort of broaden out the defense and say, look, look, this is, this is commonplace now. And it argues to me that maybe the law is the problem here, and we need to really look at that before we can see another one of these trials really sort of play out. Professor Nesson has a very strong view of how the law should be, and justice and fairness being the core of it, as he defines those things. And it's not the way those are necessarily defined in the current statutes. And so I think the interesting question is whether this is really a battle that can be fought in the legal system or whether it's more of a legislative question. Uh, and, and, and Nesson is not a lightweight. He has been on the Harvard faculty since 66. Did you get a sense of if he had been allowed by the judge to make his fair use argument, what it would have been? I think he just wants to say that everybody's doing it. This activity has basically escaped the bounds of law by virtue of being common. And the judge basically was horrified at that and saying that this would eviscerate any sort of copyright. Uh, Nate, what is the status of both these cases? We're talking about the one in Minnesota with uh, the Jamie Thomas Rassett case and the Tenenbaum case in Boston. Where are these going next? Well, verdicts are in on both of them. What we're waiting for next is post-trial motions that will probably be filed in each case arguing that the damage awards were unconstitutional by virtue of just being totally out of proportion to any actual harm you know, suffered by the record industries. Play the, the social observer here for a second. Play the music fan. How would you like to see this play out? Is there a solution to this? Well, I think part of the solution is that everyone has already realized the current approach is bankrupt. And I don't just mean observers. The recording industry has actually given up on these kinds of lawsuits. So I think that's a big part of moving forward is that we've got to realize this isn't the approach. And what everyone seems to be putting their money in now is two things, the carrot and the stick. And the carrot is new services. We're seeing them in Europe, things like Spotify, 
these great streaming music services where people can dial up just about any song they want. It's legal. The artists get paid. And Stick Approach is trying to drag Internet service providers into cracking down on file sharers without filing what is literally a federal lawsuit you know, over these fairly petty issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing both of those approaches around the world. I think it's a model that has some you know, prospect of moving forward. Um, we'll see. All right. We've been talking to Nate Anderson, a senior editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for coming on the show, Nate. Great. Thanks for having me. In the A, you're so, so lame, and no one here even mentions your name. It must be the weed, it must be the E, cause you be popping, heard you get it popping. Greg, we're listening to Obsessed, the new single by Mariah Carey. I know one of the albums you've been waiting for most eagerly (laughs) this year. It's coming soon. It's called Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel, and a perfect Mariah Carey album title, that is. Last week, we were talking about how Apple is getting together with the major record labels to do this uh, new push toward encouraging people to download entire albums and not just hit singles. And they're going to be giving a lot of interactive stuff, right? More to look at, more Mm -hmm. to download. This Mariah Carey album is going light years beyond that though. Def Jam Island, uh, her record label, has got some sort of cross-promotional deal with L Magazine. They're doing a mini Mariah Carey magazine that has all sorts of Mariah butterfly centric editorial uh, fascinating articles like VIP access to her sexy love life and amazing closet and of course lots of pictures of Mariah it's going to be in or a version of it will be in 500,000 copies of Elle magazine, whereas every copy of the CD will have the whole magazine, and it'll also be available to you as a digital download if you're downloading the digital music. And in between, there's tons of advertising. The whole cost for this mini magazine is being offset by a bunch of advertisers, some perfume companies, some champagne companies, the Bahamas Board of Tourism. Antonio L.A. Reed, who is a sharp businessman who runs uh, Mariah's label, is trying to resurrect or, or keep her career out there, has said, you know, it wouldn't be right for, for every kind of sponsor. He wouldn't have wanted a uh, comet <laughs> abrasive cleanser. But if it fit Mariah's lifestyle, he was into it. And apparently so was Mariah. That's not a haul. I mean, at Walmart, Walmart's going to be selling her new CD right next to her perfume. Yeah. It, it seems like Mariah's not missing a single opportunity short of putting a bar barcode on her head. Oh my god, it's become the, the music has definitely become an adjunct to the advertising in this case. It's a Neiman Marcus catalog essentially, you know, with a little bit of music attached to it. You know, we we're seeing this trend in in music lately, Jim, where uh, a lot of artists are starting to cross-pollinate advertising with their music. Chris Brown actually included a chewing gum jingle within one of his songs right. on, on his latest album. Uh, we've seen artists like Diddy and Busta Rhymes, you know, incorporating alcohol products into their songs and, and, and getting uh, endorsements out of it. It's a you know, amazing trend that's only going to get worse. We're going to start to see mo- the equivalent of movie trailers at the start of CDs pretty soon where, where there's going to be all sorts of advertising. We're going to see advertising between songs. Yeah, commercials in between songs. <laughs> if it's like a classic rocker, you can do an erectile yeah. dysfunction commercial, you know, or it'd be great. You know, the Who sell out? I think they were thinking that was a joke back when they made that album in the 60s. Now we're seeing it come to complete reality. I got a feeling that tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good night. That tonight's gonna be a good, good night. 
Oh, I love that song. I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. You know I also love stories about the Black Eyed Peas, Greg. <laughs> yeah, never your favorite s- group, right, Jim? Never <laughs> cease to amuse me. The Black Eyed Peas set a record last week for the longest successive number one chart run by a duo or group in the 51-year history of the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. I am very proud of Will I Am, Fergie, and the gang. <laughs> I Got a Feeling uh, spent five weeks at number one after 12 weeks at number one being dominated by Boom Boom Pow, the first single from uh, their new album, The End, the E-N-D. Nobody since Boys to Men in the mid-90s has, uh, has done that well. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the evolution of this group, Jim. You know, I make fun of your uh, interest in this group, but it's important to note, I think, that they actually started out as a kind of a socially conscious underground hip-hop group in the 90s and basically didn't sell any records. Yeah, a poor man's roots. Yeah, and then Will I Am kind of reinvents the group, uh, brings in Stacy Ferguson into the group, and uh, suddenly starts cranking out these novelty hit singles. They've had more than a dozen hits in the last decade. I think it could be argued they are the dominant force in R&B and hip-hop when it comes to just commercially selling stuff. I mean, I think back to the early 90s when Babyface dominated the scene, and then from the mid-90s on, you know, R. Kelly was the dominant force. You know, Will I Am as producer, songwriter, rapper, he is the guy dominating R&B and hip-hop in the last last decade. And now with this string of singles, My Humps, Let's Get It Started, Boom Boom Pow, I mean, you know, when is it going to well, end? Well, hopefully never. He's a he's a pop genius. <laughs> I, I don't know about R and B and hip hop, uh, you know, but in terms of of bubblegum pop, the man's a genius. He's a genius at making a lot of money. That's for sure. My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodles. Yeah. My gal is red hot. Your gal ain't doodles. Well, she ain't got no money, but man, she's really got a lot. Well, I've got a gal six feet four. That is Billy Lee Riley uh, with a song called Red Hot. The reason we're playing it is that uh, Riley, one of the classic Sun Records performers during the heyday, of that Memphis label in the 50s is dead at the age of 75. He died a few days ago of colon cancer. Riley's one of the last living links to that era, Jim. I mean, we're talking about performers like Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, all coming out of that uh, studio, Sam Phillips' studio in Memphis. Riley wasn't one of the better known acts out of that studio. He was eclipsed by those superstars, but I would argue he was one of the most profound performers. In fact, he played on a number of those uh, classic singles out of that uh, studio. He and his band were essentially the house band for a lot of those Sun Records singles. Uh, James Van Eaton on drums, Roland James on guitar, Marvin Pepper on bass. Riley never got to record a full album for Sun, but he released a string of singles uh, that became incredibly influential years on down the road. Uh, that song we just played, Red Hot, was covered by numerous artists. And the one I'm going to play next in tribute to him is is perhaps his best-known song. And I, I would rate it among the top four or five songs to come out of that studio in the 50s. I know where you're going. 
listen to the sound of this record. I, I think it's ahead of its time in many ways. Uh, Roland James with that whammy bar guitar on this record is just mind-blowingly good. And uh, bassist Marvin Pepper basically sounds like he's losing his mind in the middle of this song <laughs> with the screams he's letting out. And I think there's just a level of insanity fueled by booze and desperation that you can hear in these records. I mean, here's a guy, Riley, who grew up on a sharecropper farm in Arkansas. For many of these performers, they knew that this, this was their one shot. Yeah. And this could be the last thing they ever record. So they played with a certain air of desperation and need that really oozes through it. I mean, this is the essence of rock and roll. Oh, I love that. Even after the Sun Years, this guy had a fascinating career. In the 60s, he moved to California. He winds up on records by Sammy Davis Jr., yeah. the Beach Boys, and Dean Martin. Who else could be in all three of those settings and make the song you're just about to play? Exactly, and a, a very credible blues performer in his later years as well. But if he's going to be remembered for one thing, it's going to be for this song, and with good reasons. The 1957 single, Flying Saucer Rock and Roll, from Billy Lee Riley on Sound Opinions. Billy Lee Riley with the classic flying saucer rock and roll with one Jerry Lee Lewis, his buddy, on piano, banging away that long sustained chord at the end. Great stuff, Mr. Cott. Rest in peace, uh, Billy Lee Riley, dead at 75. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, the Rock Doctors are back in session. Greg and I are going to help a listener with some musical medical problems. And later on, we'll review the new albums from Garage Rockers, Japan Droids, and singer and songwriter Regina Spector.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Periodically on this show, Jim and I like to don the white lab coats and help our listeners with uh, a musical medical issue that they might have. In other words, they're stuck in some kind of a rut and they need to get out of it. They have a certain phobia about a certain style of music and we like to find a way in for them. So we'll give them a prescription and hopefully it'll take. Uh, We usually give them about a week to see if the prescription works and then we talk with them after that week is done to see how well it did for them. Greg, our patient this week is a fellow named Dan from Oakland, California. He contacted us, said, look, I've just turned 40. I'm just not getting out there anymore. I'm not discovering new music. I need some help. I need to be energized. Dan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Well, thank you for coming on. Tell us what your problem is, Dan. I gather you just uh, celebrated a milestone birthday. You're 40 years old now. Is that right? Yep, I'm 40 years old, and uh, I think, you know, they always say you got to go see the doctor when you turn 40, so it just seemed to make sense to reach out to you guys for some help. I think oh. you're going to be a little less painful than what most of, most of my options are. Yeah. Uh, what is your problem musically? Well, guys, listen, I, I have spent way too many years uh, wandering in the desert of country music, alt-country music, and even mass-market hip-hop, and I just need some guidance and some help. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I, 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 you're, I'm, you're blowing my mind already, Dan. You're, you're talking about mass market hip hop and country music as being your two primary interests. Those are the two buttons I usually seem to press on the radio. And wow. uh, since I don't play a lot of old '97s on the radio, those are kind of my options. Well, diversity's not your problem. I mean, that's a good thing. That's pretty adventurous to be mixing country, old country, and and hip hop. Uh, what's one of your favorite hip hop acts? You know, honestly, it's usually just kind of whatever's on the radio at the time, but you guys introduced me to a guy named Kanon, who I just can't get enough of. Yeah, but I don't stuff. really think they're playing him on the radio. When I walk through the slums like new money, little children say Kanon, boom, I The rap game just got itself a new day. This is Africa. What's the common ground here? Well, like, what do you like about country music and what do you like about hip-hop? Well, I, I think country and all country, even hip-hop to a certain extent, all share storytelling. And for me, storytelling is just kind of the commerce that I love to buy when I listen to music. So I want someone very quickly from like the time I press play to third, maybe 30 seconds into the song, I want to be transported. I want to be in somebody's life or I want to be hearing them you know, going through some challenges or transported to another part of the country or another part of the world. And uh, a lot of that music, the alt-country, the country, uh, and even the hip-hop will we'll do that very quickly. So the lyrics are meaningful. You, you, you pay attention to what they're saying, so obviously you want the words to be relatively clear. You want to be able to understand what the, what the singer's saying. Yeah, that's usually helpful, and a yeah. uh, good melody isn't bad either. But, uh, yeah, but, but you know, how, knowing quickly kind of where we're headed is always exciting. Um, and, and you're saying that you don't, you, you don't have the drive or you're just not succeeding as you try to discover new music? Well, you know, I've just basically been too busy. I'm lucky enough to have my own business. I've got two small kids, and, you know, chasing new music is is fraught with peril, and I'm a little worried that I'm self-medicating. So I thought, you know, (laughs) maybe reaching out to some doctors for some guidance would would be helpful. Well, self-medicating by listening to this show every week is not bad. I mean, we gave you Canon. That's cool, you know. Even if you catch, like, one out of every three shows, you're going to get more music in a year than, than most people. That's very true. 
and and you want us to recommend a genre that isn't country or hip hop since since you've been stuck in those two ruts. Well, I'm open to anything. So, um, you know, between the stuff that I've already been exposed to on your show, um, I actually almost even pressed click on iTunes to buy Mastodon just because your recommendation was so good. So Mm. I'm open to anything, guys. Almost. I'm 40, right? The whole world's in front of me. Absolutely. Almost. But he didn't, didn't go all the way with Mastodon. No, I just couldn't. But I like your attitude. I like your attitude, Dan. I think uh, I think Dr. D. Regattis has a prescription for you. You got one in mind, too, Greg? Absolutely. Go ahead, Dr. D. Uh, I'll, I'll go first. Start. I don't don't want to give him another country act or another hip-hop act. That's cool that he's into that, but part of Sound Opinions is, you know, when we say the world's only rock and roll talk show, we define it incredibly broadly mm-hmm. from, you know, Frank Sinatra to Kanye West, right? I want to give him an album that I would have played last week on the Buried Treasure show, except uh, I didn't get around to it. Jason Lytle, the former leader of Granddaddy, I think is one of the most intriguing singers and songwriters uh, out there today. With Granddaddy, it was, it was this swirling, psychedelic assault. Now that he is on his own after the end of that band with his first uh, solo album, Yours Truly, The Commuter, it's a little more stripped down. Doesn't sound like country at all, but but a little more focus on him as a singer and songwriter as it would be with a country singer-songwriter. Um, these are not beginning, middle, end, straightforward story songs, uh, Dan, but they are story songs indeed in a kind of uh, impressionistic beat way. Jason Lytle's the kind of guy who, who loves to drive his his pickup truck through rural Montana and, and see interesting characters and then free associate their life stories, whether they have anything to do with reality or not. I don't know, but, it, but it's just fascinating the worlds he creates, and it is very tuneful and wonderfully melodic. So I think uh, if you give a listen to uh, Jason Lytle's Yours Truly, The Commuter, that may be just the ticket for you. Fantastic. Sounds awesome. Good recommendation, Dr. DeRigatis. I'm also picking up on the storytelling theme, Dan. It's obviously a key component of what you like to hear. And uh, you also mentioned the country element, the alt-country thing. Uh, and clearly lyrics are a big part of that genre as well. So I'm going to steer you towards an artist that I think fulfills that desire. An artist by the name of Alejandro Escovedo. First of all, I think he's one of the progenitors of, of alt-country uh, he was in a band called Rank and File in the early 80s out of California that created a blueprint for that sound, and it became much more popular 15 years later. Rank and File really didn't sell a lot of records, but he was ahead of the curve on that one. He was also in one of the first punk bands out of your area, The Nuns, who uh, came out of San Francisco in the late 70s, actually were the opening band for the Sex Pistols when they played their final show in San Francisco in, in, in 1978. And then, uh, last but not least, Alejandro, uh, since he started making solo records in the early 90s, has really done a great job of filtering his life experiences into his lyrics. So he does create uh, this world, this personal journey that he's been taking through all of his records. And his latest record is called Real Animal, and he looks back on some of those early days, those uh, days that I was just describing, what it was like to be in a punk band in San Francisco, what it was like to be around that scene that alt-country scene as it was percolating in in Austin, Texas in the early 80s where he later moved. And again, personal stories about his development as an artist, as a young man, looking back on those days and then filtering it through a modern sensibility with this really great rockin' band in the studio. The record was produced by uh, Tony Visconti, who's worked with people like David Bowie and T-Rex, and he's a huge fan of Alejandro's. 
So again, storytelling, great songs, the melodies are there, but above all, I think you're going to hear a guy telling his story in a very compelling way on this record. So um, Real Animal uh, by Alejandro Escovedo is the record I want you to hear. I'll add that both of these guys, Jason Lytle and Alejandro Escovedo, have been guests on Sound Opinions. So if you take your medicine diligently, Dan, listen to these uh, two recent (laughs) albums that we're recommending, then you can go a little deeper and go back to the podcast and look up those shows. But we'll concentrate one one treatment at a time. Listen to these two records and check back with us next week. Tell us if we're making any headway, okay? You bet. Thanks a ton, guys. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. And then the witch doctor, he told me what to do. He said that. All right, it's a week later. We're on the line with Dan again, Dr. DeRigatis, and uh, it's time to find out how that musical prescription took. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, guys. So uh, how did the prescription take? Uh, How did these drugs feel coursing through your uh, musical veins? You know, they always say that there should be a waiting period uh, to sort of check the adoption of these drugs. And i got to tell you, (laughs) at first, drugs reacted one way, and then kind of after a week, I'd say they've settled in a totally different way. So, uh, (laughs) But I'm really excited. It's great stuff. Yeah, we didn't warn them about side effects. <laughs> yeah, well, we only have that discussion if you start calling the 911 Sound Opinions hotline and saying, look, I'm reacting adversely to this music. But oh, I just love it, those drug commercials, yeah. you know, with the fine print at the bottom. You know, in rare instances, <laughs> may cause death. Yeah. Exactly. If you wear your iPod for more than four hours, call a doctor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, it's a good thing we liked you because, you know, we have been known to over-prescribe at times. But <laughs> in this case, Dan, you said that uh, you came around to both of these records, or how did it go? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think first I kind of started liking the, the Jason Lytle album uh, a lot more. There's some upbeat, catchy stuff to start with. There's some, like, slow and simple and layered stuff. And then there's just some, like, epic, soaring stuff going on. easy to get a hold of, whereas I thought the Alejandro Escobedo one was a little more kind of um, rote almost, you know, almost like, boy, I kind of heard all this before. Uh-huh. But over the course of the week, I think, and, and what you guys had said about Alejandro is that he sort of has this life of, of experience that he wanted to share, and I saw it kind of as I listened to the album, it's almost like a triptych or a travelogue of his entire career and where he's been. Mm-hmm. And I just find that so incredibly uh, addictive uh, that I can't stop listening to it. It's a great album. I lived in the Chelsea Walls on 7th and 23rd. We came to live inside the myth of everything we heard. The poets on their bar stools, they just love it when it rains. They comb their hair in the mirror and grow addicted to the pain. And it makes no All 
right. Sounds like we connected. One of the things, Dan, that you told us when we were uh, diagnosing you is that you love the storytelling. I think that's something that Dr. Cott and I both honed in on. Vital storytelling is pretty uh, skewed. It's pretty weird. It's pretty trippy. But I figured that the melodies would hook you in, and that sounds like what happened there. Absolutely. I I think it's kind of hypnotic. I mean, you take a song like Brand New Sun, and it just it's this kind of great tune. It catches you in. So you should hold my hand. But then also on the Ghost of My Old Dog song, he's sort of singing to his girlfriend. He's talking about a dead dog. I mean, all he needs is a truck and a cowboy hat, and it's kind of a country song. There you go, because I, I heard you say you wanted country, but, but something new and fresh. And, and you can never call Jason Lytle country, but, <laughs> but there's, there's a continuum there. Exactly. I'm only Just in the interest of fairness, uh, Dan, was there anything you didn't like about uh, Jason Lytle's debut solo album? Um, you know, it was interesting. At first, I was a little put off by the noise and the fuzz. Um, in a handful of the songs, it's, um, it's kind of a slow 70s feel, storytelling man with a guitar. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this fuzz comes in. that the more I listened to it, I kind of warmed to it. But at first, I was sort of saying to myself, man, what is this stuff? Yeah, that might be my own personal bias. See, if it doesn't have noise and fuzz, I'm put off by it. (laughs) Yeah, Jim and singer-songwriters just don't get along. Unless Uh, they're weird, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be some weirdness, some trippiness in there. And uh, Alejandro, I guess, has been characterized by some people as a singer-songwriter, but I also like him for the fact that he does take these little side trips and tangents. Now, it's interesting what you said about that album, Dan, that at first you said you, f- you felt like you'd, you'd heard a lot of this music before. Yeah, and, and what was fascinating to me is that I kind of went back through it, and I realized that there's a song that starts and it sounds like a Ronette song. There's a song that starts and it sounds like a Stone song. There's kind of a Dylan band kind of ramshackle harmonica guitar thing going on. Mm-hmm. There's even one that has kind of a Bowie's 80s feel to it. that's what sort of led me to think that this guy's kind of on a progression. He's telling us kind of a story of where he's been over his life. And, and you know, to close out talking about Mill Valley and Salton Sea and all that California stuff, uh, kind of really grounded him in sort of where he is in his own life. Out on 
Alejandro is a big uh, music fan and a record collector, and a lot of those uh, names that you just mentioned are a big part of his growth as as a young guy falling in love with rock and roll. So you're exactly right. That that's exactly what he's doing, and he's sort of referencing these names and also the styles of music. And it's also interesting too because we talked about this last week when I recommended the record that he was in on a ground floor of a lot of these movements. So those movements, uh, the, the punk scene, the the alt country scene. They were referencing a lot of these same bands that he's talking about on this record. It was a, it was an extraordinary journey to kind of take with him, and now you know now that I'm old and looking back on 40 <laughs> years, he's clearly looking back over his amazing career, and so really felt like I was in sync with him in listening to the album. I, I'm glad you brought up that old thing, Dan. You <laughs> you were saying one of your problems is you, you kind of feel like you're having a midlife crisis and you're just not motivated to go out there and and dig. Did we inspire you at all? Absolutely. I mean, two things I've been shocked with. One is my wife bought me the Lily Allen album for Father's Day, and I finally just put it in. And I was shocked. It was great. It was, uh, you know, this young poet philosopher with a techno beat. And then I also the other night went to go see Of Montreal, that band with ah. uh, I was, uh, saw them in a theater and just was kind of blown away by their whole sound and their whole stage show. So, yeah, I think, I think this prescription is going to take. Well, that's so, great. It's like exercise. You know, when the doctor tells you, look, if you just try and make an effort, you know, it'll become part of your routine. And it hasn't for me, but I'm just saying doctors <laughs> say that. All right, well, I'll work on my musical sit-ups. Dan, that's fantastic. Glad uh, you liked the prescription. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon and give you some more recommendations. Thanks a million, guys. If you'd like to make an appointment with the Rock Doctors or you want to nominate someone you think is in need of urgent assistance, fill out our patient form at soundopinions.org. To make a comment on the show, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. And in a minute, Greg and I will be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the new albums from Japan Droids and Regina Spector. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by Alltech Lansing, online at alltechlansing.com. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the band called Japan Droids with a track from their new album called Post Nothing. That particular track was called The Boys Are Leaving Town. And yes, the boys are named Brian King and David Prowse, and that's it. Their stated goal, Prowse on drums, King on guitar, is to sound not like a two-piece rock band, but about five or six pieces if they can. (laughs) To sound as big as possible, to make people forget about the apparent limitations. There was some talk early on with this Vancouver duo of of being a larger band, and then they realized, hey, we can do it all ourselves. Why not? Let's go ahead. They made their debut record in 2007, followed up in 2008 with a record called Lullaby Death, and now with a record called Post Nothing, are starting to build some serious buzz on the underground scene. They're with the Polyvinyl label, which has released uh, several fine rock records in recent years. The band just had a, a key slot at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Union Park, has been written about glowingly uh, at the Pitchfork site, as well as numerous other music sites and blogs. And now let's take a listen to the music and find out where this band is going and how good they really are. We want to play a track from the new record called Young Hearts Spark Fire from Japan Droids on Sound Opinions. Young Hearts Spark Fire on Sound Opinions by the group Japan Droids from the new album Post Nothing. Greg, I know why these guys are the buzz of all the indie blogs right now, and they're tapping into two trends that are sort of uh, pervasive in indie rock at the moment. One is a uh, resurgence of early 90s, late 80s fuzz guitar, big, fat, noisy guitars a la Dinosaur Jr. or Mud Honey or Super Chunk. The other is 
everybody's a two-man band these days. <laughs> I, I think with gas prices, it's much easier to just get into a, a yeah. Prius and go on tour than it is to get a van. But Japan Droids rise above the pack, I think, because they have incredible melodies buried in all the fuzz. Really great songwriters who have a winning ear for hooks that stick in your head, themes devoted to alienation, mostly from the opposite sex, but every once in a while they get into that kind of I just wasn't made for these times vibe. These are great, tuneful alienation anthems. That's all there is to say. This album rocks, and I gotta say on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, it's a very enthusiastic buy it for me. Well, they definitely won me over when I saw them live a couple of weeks ago just by their sheer exuberance. Uh, they just love to play, and there's something really just energizing about seeing a band of any size that is just completely in the moment and loving every minute of what mm-hmm. they're doing. The, the the sheer joy really translates. You know, just when you think, you know what, guitars, drums, you know, how many more things can you see with that format and, and, and be moved by it? And then you see something like this and you go, yeah, that's what it's about. That's how every show should look and sound. No commercials between their songs <laughs> like Mariah Carey. And King is not so much about individual notes. As you said, it's about that big wave of sound that he's creating. He's definitely into the mode of, of more of a texture guitar player. You know, one minute it sounds like a, like a garbage compactor, the next like a big wave washing over you. There's a few songs in this where it sounds like a, a machine in a factory throbbing away. And Prowse is a great drummer, and the, and the way these two play off each other I'm reminded of sort of like an indie rock version of gospel music, the call and response building to these anthemic crescendos, and that's what every song builds to. Uh, Songwriting, you you praise their songwriting. I'm not so much sure about the songwriting, but I certainly love the exuberance, and I love the fact that there's these hooks in these songs that you carry away for days afterward. That combined with the just absolute joy and exhilaration of hearing these guys play has totally won me over. This is a buy-it record all the way. It's like forgetting the words to your favorite song. You can't believe it. You were always singing along. It was so easy. And the words so sweet. You can't remember. You try to feel the beat. That is a song called Eat, E-E-T, by Regina Spector from her new album, Far. Kind of about uh, forgetting the words to your favorite song and just putting in nonsense syllables, which is something Regina Spector's been doing throughout her career. (laughs) 29-year-old, born in Russia, uh, lived there till she was nine, then moved to New York. Has been part of the kind of uh, modern, bohemian, anti-folk Brooklyn hipster scene in New York ever since. Uh, She's three major label albums into her career, and this time out, boy, she's getting a big push by her label. They hired four of the biggest name producers in music today to help her craft this record. David Kahn, who's worked with everyone 
from The Strokes to Paul McCartney, Jackknife Lee, whose last uh, big credits were U2 and R.E.M., Jeff Lynne of ELO <laughs> and the Traveling Wilburys, and uh, Mike Elizondo, uh, known for working uh, with Fiona Apple and Eminem. Boy, oh boy, that says that uh, someone is destined for stardom. Indeed, Regina Spector has seen a cult following grow into the point where she can sell out multiple nights in theaters in many cities across America. So, is she delivering the goods on this new record far? We'll be back with our reviews in a second. First, we want to play a song. This is the opening track of the new album. It's called The Calculation by Regina Spector on Sound Opinions. You went into the kitchen cupboard, got yourself another hour and you gave Sat there looking at the faces of the strangers in the pages Till we knew mathematically They were in our minds until forever But we didn't mind, we didn't know better So we made our own computer out of macaroni pieces And I did our thinking while we lived our lives We counted up our feelings That is Regina Spector with a song called The Calculation from her much-hyped new record called Far. You know, Jim, I uh, I want to like Regina Spector. Uh, <laughs> Do you, she's Greg? She's one of those performers that you think, well, she's got this kind of strong, idiosyncratic personality, and I like that type of performer, somebody who sort of stands apart from the pack, and she does make a point to highlight her little quirks, inflating them into hooks on many of these songs. Normally that works for me. In some cases, it doesn't. I cite that Saya album that you liked so much a I couple did like years that ago record, that yeah. just drove me nuts. And I got to say, the same thing is true of Regina Spector's Far. I understand that t- there's talent there, but there's a point where weirdness, eccentricity, and personality gives way to preciousness. There's a difference between being cute and cutesy. Are you saying and you've never made a computer out of macaroni pieces? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. And you know, again, I don't normally object to that sort of thing. I think, wow, that's an interesting take on on a subject. You know, she has these songs where she addresses God, and I think she's trying to make a profound point, and it, and it comes across rather flat and obvious to me. There's a song where she imitates a dolphin. Ooh. 
after about the second run through where she's imitating those dolphin sounds, I'm wondering, gee, I'd never want to hear this song again. <laughs> you know, there's lines like from Folding Chair, that song where she's, I've got a perfect body because my eyelashes catch my sweat. Yes, they do. And I'm just, you know, it's just so precious and twee. And she's a little bit too impressed with her own cleverness. You are a hard-hearted man. Nicely produced. There's some nice hooks here. But ultimately, I see this as an incredibly shallow record. I'm surprised to hear you say this, because this is the record where I learned to stop worrying and love the (laughs) Regina Spector. I was not impressed by her previous offerings. And to me, the song that you... She's not singing to God, by the way. In Laughing With, she's making, I think, some pretty profound points. No one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. The policeman rings your doorbell. You're not laughing at God, right? And I think that with that song, I understood, okay, all these other songs where she's doing the dolphin imitation and talking about uh, playing with macaroni are kind of an insane response to a world that's pretty crazy. I love this record. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, I, I got to give it a buy it. It sounds like you were going the opposite end. Yeah, Jim. I mean, I, I never want to hear this record again. So trash it. Ah, two buy it's for Japan Droids and one buy it and one trash it for Regina Spector from Mr. Cott, who is a very mean man. <laughs> what do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we are going to look at the long-running phenomenon of the supergroup, when a bunch of guys from different bands, all-stars all, join forces. Greg, as always, our own supergroup produced this show. Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn are our producers. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia, never built a computer out of macaroni, but he did build a radio. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Lucas Gillen. I'm from Chicago, listening on WBEZ. And uh, I just listened to your Buried Treasures show, and I just wanted to commend you for including a little tiny bit of jazz on Sound Opinions. Um, The Alan Toussaint record is absolutely one of the best jazz records to come out all year and uh, I'm a jazz internet radio programmer so I've heard hundreds of 2009 jazz albums and that one has been getting a lot of attention but not much outside of the jazz world so thank you so much for letting your listeners know about it and hopefully it'll make a couple uh, jazz fans out of them my only critique would be that you stopped it right when the bass solo started, and that is one of the uh, best bass solos I've heard in a long time. It's minimalist, it has humor, it's quirky, and it actually makes me laugh out loud when I listen to it. It's so great. Thank you very much for uh, putting some attention on uh, Alan Toussaint's Bright Mississippi. Thanks a lot. Bye.
Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Dominic calling from Brooklyn, New York. Love the show about uh, the best albums of the year so far, as well as the Buried Treasures. Um, I wanted to throw one out there. I think qualifies for both of those. Band certainly garnering a lot of uh, spotlight on the up and up. VOCs out of uh, San Francisco, I believe, put out a bunch of records, kind of independently DIY. But this year they've come with uh, their best yet. It's called Help on In the Red Records, and just totally blows away everything they've done before. Just reverb, so pop songs that really, really have the hooks and really drive home everything they've done or been doing for the last five years. Just want to throw that out there. Thanks for. Uh, you know, continuing to highlight the stuff that nobody's talking about and uh, keep up the work. Sound Opinions. Uh, I really love your show. You guys are part of my regular music listening. But I have a little complaint today. I feel like your buried treasures really aren't that buried. So if you're going to play buried treasures, you know, instead of the regular Michael Jackson, Kanye West, you know, Black Mountain, all the popular stuff, dig a little deeper, really deep. This is Tom from the Chicago area. I am calling to comment about Jim's buried treasure, Ida Maria, Fortress Around My Heart. Listened to Sound Opinions last week. Really liked the stuff that they played on the air, so I bought the CD. It's an amazing CD. I never would have heard it unless Jim had recommended it. And there are publications every year that talk about songs that epitomize the summer for a certain year, and I think I Like You so much better when you're naked. It definitely uh, should be the song that epitomizes the summer of 2009. Thanks, Jim, for turning me on to this artist. I wish I could see her at Lollapalooza. Fortunately, I can't, but I have a feeling she's got a long career ahead of her. Thank you. More messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.